This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. Welcome back to The Short Code, a podcast of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. With me today, a crowd of medical students here to opine on all things medicine adjacent. Say hello to MD, PhD student Aline Sanduk. Hey, guys. Our state capital correspondent, M3, Emma Barr, is here from Des Moines. Hello. And we've got a couple of new folks. M1's AJ Chaudhry. Chaudhry. Oh, you're okay. I looked up the, like, Indian pronunciation. I wanted to... I wanted to see if I could. God damn it. You people and your <laughs> up names. And Alex Belzer. Hello. Uh, guys, I was trying to think of a collective name for medical students, like a flock of birds or a clouder of cats. A pride of lions. A, sh- pride of lions. a shrewdness of apes. Never heard that one before. Huh. Or a rabble of bees as opposed to a swarm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or a murder of crows. Any, any ideas about what we can... About what we can uh, call a group of med students? Maybe like a, a shelf. Coat? I heard that's relevant later. A shelf. <laughs> a shelf. A shelf. A school of fish. <laughs> I was thinking uh, a grumbling of med students. That might that might reflect our sentiments. I, you know, like I say, I always I never uh, I never want to take take away anybody's God given right to to bitch and moan, but it is a time honored tradition. What about you, Emma? Any ideas? Come on. Maybe like a coat of a coat. students? A coat. Yes. A pocket. <laughs> yes, a pocket. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we'll try to make this a thing uh, in the world. <laughs> um, hey, uh, I love moms. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Not that way. Which one the most, though? Yours. I, right? but moms, <laughs> but moms are cool. Uh, for instance, Lori Bacalzo, this is, uh, Brandon Bacalzo's mom, uh, she sent in a sponsorship. Uh, and when I asked her what she wanted for her donation to the Short Code podcast, uh, like what message I should say, she said, just pimp Carver College and the Short Code podcast and remind people there's a donate button. And there is a donate button on our website at theshortcode.com. If you want to donate, you know, whatever, it's a, it's a name your price donation. We suggest $10, but you know, if you want to donate $5, totally cool. If you want to donate $100, totally cool. Um, Why are you continually looking at me as you're saying, like just making direct <laughs> eye contact with me? Unless as somebody who has benefited from the show quite a bit. <laughs> and you get free school. Uh, that's true. All right. All right. I'm sold. For I'll, work. I'll donate. I'll donate immediately that's all right that's good arguments but yeah you just go to the shortcode.com there's an orange button on the left side of the of the of every page and 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 click that button and 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 donate and the reason i'm asking for donations is because i want to do new and interesting things with the shortcode podcast And, and you know in the past um i have said we don't need we don't actually need money um, it's changed a little bit in uh, in 2020. I mean, it's not like they're gonna you know kick us out or anything like that, but at least <laughs> so far. But you know, if I want to do new and interesting things, I figure I gotta I gotta turn up the steam a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Turn up the steam. 
So we'll see. I don't know if you know how steam works, just based on what you just did. And <laughs> I'm, 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 you don't I'm dial up twirling steam, a knob, Dave. Twirling a steam knob. You don't have a, you don't have a steam knob <laughs> on like an iron. Yeah, maybe. I don't yeah. know. No, you should do like the wavy thing with your hand. Okay, <laughs> turn the steam. Uh, see, I mean, one of the things I want to do, maybe someday, Aline, is live video. And all of that exchange right now with the, the hand and the things, those gestures, you didn't get any of that. You listeners missed out on all of that. Yeah, because I feel bad for them. I know, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, tell um, them, guys. Tell them how great that was. That was transcendental almost. That's yeah. part of my week. <laughs> yeah. And then another mom stepped up to the plate this week. Actually, this was totally, this is a totally different thing. Um, Emma Moms, Emma, Emma Moms, <laughs> Emma Barr's mom. Uh, sent uh, sent a care package, uh, and I, I guess uh, I didn't even remember Emma that I had said this, but uh, I was talking about needing masks. Maybe on Facebook. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so I posted on Facebook how I was looking for looking for masks, and you know, send me a link, and I was going to buy some masks. And then I get this package like out of nowhere from Emma's <laughs> from Emma Barr's mom uh, with two masks for me. Uh, which are two one is different a, styles. Two different and she's styles. She's been perfecting her styles in the past six months. She's so. doing really well. Um, <laughs> this Seattle Seahawks mask uh, mm -hmm. is quite good at blocking fog. You know, glasses fog, which I have a problem with. Um, and then the other one fits great too. And then she also Fine. sent us uh, some apple applets and cotlets. I don't know what that is. Cotlets. They're, they're apple, huh? It's applets and cotlets. Applets and cotlets yeah. from uh, walnut candies, a uh, apple, apricot, and walnut candies from the Pacific Northwest. So from your your part of the country where your where your people are from, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. So like Washington zone for apples and I guess those treats. Not yeah. to like make you not excited, but I don't think they're that great. Awesome. <laughs> well, you, let's let's you guys can try them. Um, we're sort of breaking the rules a little bit here in sharing things. So be careful, you know, dump them. I should have gotten a plate before here. Like don't use your fingers. Don't like use your fingers. Just dump them out on the thing and let everybody take their own carefully without getting your getting your germy bits all over it. I think Emma is employing a very important used cars used car person sales tactic. Like, yeah, they're not that. She's great. lowering expectations. <laughs> She's lowering expectations. Have you guys? They eat them in um, *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, right? Or something similar. Uh, oh, can I get another napkin? Is yeah, there another sorry, one? Here. I think there's room on this one too. I think those are Turkish delights. Or, or not? I yeah, I think they're similar though. Okay. I don't know what the difference is. Uh, yeah, state, state employees are, um, as I was careful to mention in my post on Instagram, uh, state employees are actually barred from accepting gifts of more than $3. Uh, and I think, you know, the mask, the materials of the mask, you know, they, they sort of fit there. That was, you know, that was her gift to me. So thank you. And I just, just for the record, I have not eaten even one of these things. Can confirm because I don't want to accept. I don't want to accidentally go over that three dollars. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, get that audit letter. Right. <laughs> On the other hand, I feel like there was no pro. I looked up the thing yesterday, and I feel like there's no prohibition against multiple three dollar donations or something, or multiple three dollar gifts. I couldn't see anything in there. I could be wrong. 
But I think it might be possible that, you know, if you wanted to send me a car, the only thing you need to do is, like, slice it up into $3 pieces. Send you, like, one washer at a time, yeah. one screw at a time. Yeah. I'm sensing big accountant energy in the room right now. <laughs> I'm sure there's Wait, so you, you can't try the applets and collets? I think I can try one. You could have one of them sitting there gift one to yeah, you. Yeah, this is our gift It's to a you. totally separate gift. How much are applets and collets? Probably not very much. Yeah. I mean, they I can't be more than like, there's there's four in there, right? There's yeah. four in there, so whatever it costs divided by four. I'm probably under the thing. Less Thank you, Emma Barr's mom, Cindy. Yes, she makes the best care packages, so if anyone's needing one, let me know. My mom used to send me uh, care packages, and they would always include a, uh, you know, when I was in college, mm -hmm. and they would always include a uh, an article that she really wanted me to read. <laughs> oh, that's so Newspaper cute. article clipped out, you know, like, and they would, you know, they would always be something that, you know, was probably on her mind and concerning her about my, my existence. <laughs> Was it ever like passive aggressive? Like, here's a coupon for some shampoo or. Here's a phone card so you can call your mother. <laughs> These are really good, by yeah. the way. Yeah. yeah. I like yeah, them. pretty good. Yeah, I'm going to try one. I think I actually haven't had one since I was like five. And as a five year old, I didn't like them. I, honestly, I could see five year olds not liking these. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how to back that up with anything, but I could see it. By the way, uh, if you haven't seen us when we're podcasting, we are wearing uh, shields, and I just tried to put this thing right through my shield. <laughs> They're sitting in, like, different rooms, pretty much. Mm. We are literally six feet apart, yes. You know what? This is way better than Turkish Delight. Is it worth losing your job over? Yeah. <laughs> I have a second one. <laughs> uh. Hey, we got a listener question from Michael about chronic health conditions in medical school. And, uh, you know, I think he was hoping for a show where we were able to get together um, a bunch of folks that suffer from uh, um, chronic health conditions in medical school and maybe hear from them. I wasn't able to do that, but what I did was I sent out an email to the student body and asked for people to, uh, to submit their observations, thoughts about it. But first, let's hear from Michael. Um, and these clips are going to be a little long. I didn't want to edit them. Uh, so bear with it. Hey everyone. I'm calling in or rather recording a memo on my computer tonight as Dave asked me to, to propose a rather complicated topic that isn't talked about much in medicine. So a little about me. I was diagnosed with type one diabetes when I was two and a rare form of epilepsy around 10, which first brought me to the U of I back in 2011 when I was 12 years old, I think. And throughout the years, I've become really passionate about what I simply call the patient experience. By this, I essentially mean what a patient goes through in treatment, how they process it, and how it shapes their perspective of medicine and even every aspect of their life outside of treatment. I'm particularly interested in how medical students who personally live with significant health conditions are driven and informed by their experience as a patient throughout their medical training. This is what I hope I'll be able to focus on and write about as a student. I know I won't be the only student quietly fighting to live every day, but it's easy to feel like you're alone when you're training in a profession that perhaps undervalues our perspectives and can make everyone scared to admit that they're sick. 
I'm extremely open about my conditions and it's led me to meet a lot of amazing people and to most of the things I've done in college, but that's a story for another time. I already have the feeling that the U of I would encourage students living with chronic conditions to be open and to share their experiences, but I'd love to hear it from some people there. If you can round up some students who are open about their conditions, I'd love to hear their stories and I guess their wisdom from this dual role as a medical student and a patient. Before I end, let me also direct you to this new project from two students at Harvard Medical School called Unconditional Publishing, which you can look up pretty quickly. I first came across it on Twitter probably a few months ago. And basically, it's an incredible initiative that I would say is similar to Iowa's Examine Life Journal, with a specific goal of publishing the stories, the art, and other media of medical students who live with chronic conditions. And I think it'd be a pretty cool thing to talk about. So thank you. Michael, thanks for uh, obeying and uh, recording your, uh, your question. I uh, appreciate that. I like when people obey me. It makes me feel good. Um, well, I, I think this is a great question because I have known med students over the course of my 18 years here at the College of Medicine who have, you know, who have chronic conditions and live with them. And and um, and I I know of other, you know, I know of students who have, you know, disabilities and things like that in medicine um, in in med school and uh, who become doctors. I think it's important to talk about because of a couple of reasons. Um, number one, we have these things called technical standards for admission. And this is a double AMC thing, I think, um, where basically you need to, you know, schools have can, can have technical standards for admission which um, are sort of the minimum ex the, the minimum abilities that you, the phys minimum physical abilities that you need to have um, in order to practice medicine and become a, a physician. So that's number one. And number two, um, yes, the fact that, you know, there are many students who have had disabilities over the years here at the Carver College of Medicine um, and who do just fine. Any, uh, any thoughts so far that you want to, that you want to share about this? I mean, that's very powerful. It's so hard or it, not hard. It's easy to forget what people are struggling with while they're going about their lives, just smiling and laughing and um and kind of living with like some of the worst things that can ever happen to someone so i think it's it definitely is a value and an asset to everyone around you to know or like around you know michael and other colleagues that uh you know, they have things going on if only to know that anyone else who's going through that isn't alone and that it, it can be done yeah. most importantly so to his point about the patient experience, any any thoughts about that? Yeah, um, at Carver, from day one, we've had it hammered home that the patient is the center of what we do, so we need to understand the patient's perspective. And having a chronic illness definitely helps with that as a physician because you have the patient experience. And that's something that we do every week in our classes where we're getting the patient perspective, but we're also asked to act it out and see how we would interact with a patient with certain illnesses. And it's, it's great that Michael is open about it because it shows, it gives representation to a small subset of medical students and pre-meds who 
have to deal with this kind of issue and sort of takes a stigma out of the process of being chronically ill and still needing to see patients. Mm -hmm. I would be willing to bet that you could tell, as a patient, you can tell who, which doctors have had health issues in the past, especially serious health issues in the past, scary health issues in the past, mm -hmm. and those who haven't. And just by how they respond to you when you're having that situation. So, you know, longtime listeners will know that I, you know, was very sick in my in my 20s. That is a scary, 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 that was a scary experience for me. Um, among the scariest things that have ever happened to me. And if you're a patient, if so if I had gone on to become a doctor, you know, how valuable would that experience have been to me, enabling me to interact with a patient who is going through a similarly scary situation and understand, you know, how it is they're feeling and how I can best communicate with them. And they understand in like a, a very visceral way, right. not like imagining what it must feel like, but actually like being able to call on the physical sensation right. of having been there. Yeah, because it's one thing to, you know, like when you do your when you do your uh, uh, patient instructor training and your OSCEs, you know, you're going to be expected to be to make noises um, of sympathy, right? And do it appropriately mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, you know, sort of express yourself. Um, and to some extent, you know, hopefully you can, you know, you can do that without faking it. Otherwise you might be a psychopath, but, you know, like, but if you were really able to sympathize with it and, you know, then I think that might be, you know, just a, a huge bonus for the patient. Yeah. I think it sort of plays into why, um, diversity is so important in, in professional fields, especially, um, is because, um, everybody needs to feel represented. Mm -hmm. And I think that if people with chronic illnesses can feel represented, I think a lot of times they feel lost because their chronic illness is something that is either uncurable or they, they've been fighting it for a long time. And feeling represented can, um, I'm sure that can be a huge relief. If I actually, else. sorry, do you have more to say? No, I'm good. Um, I have some like chronic conditions and when I was starting medical school, I actually felt like, like they're kind of worse at that time. And I was like, I shouldn't be in medical school. Like I don't even have my own health figured out. Like I should figure out my own stuff before trying to go to medical school. But then after like talking to other people, like there's a lot of people in medical school and doctors who have their own issues that, you know, you, you just work through at the same time. And it does give you more empathy for your patients, not only in like the visceral things that we've already talked about, but also just like the pain of having to schedule appointments and call the pharmacy and they're only open at certain times and like I remember in college having to make multiple appointments a week and trying to work with that with my schedule and it's just it's such a pain and um, having gone through that like I can I think more empathize with my patients who are trying to deal with all the logistics on top of the physical symptoms so yeah that's I think a really great point yeah it's annoying to have to have these problems but um, it does I think make you a more empathetic provider it also um, forces you to take for granted, not you specifically, but just like people in general, really forces you to take, not, not to take for granted what freedom really is. I think another thing to keep in mind is like, there's, you still have to maintain like a professional barrier between like your own health issues and your patients. So like 
um, what they're going through is, is maybe similar, but you still have to recognize that like what they're going through, it may feel differently and you haven't been through that. And so I've seen like, um, in like the practice sessions, some other students being like, Oh, I have that disease too. And then they're like, it's kind of more of like a friend talking, like comparing their diseases. And I think maybe it's, it's hard to find that balance, but somehow finding it is important. You know, uh, one thing you said, Emma, when you came to medical school, you're like, well, I don't have all this figured out for myself. Um, and now you know better, right? Um, but I think what's interesting about that observation is that was the default position that you thought you had to have. I mean, that's a, can I ask you, was your condition something that was, uh, uh, that you had had for years and maybe had lived with for a long time? Was it a sudden issue? Was it? Um, yeah, it's something that I've lived with for a long time, but it kind of waxes and wanes. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've always imagined that it'll just go away, but it doesn't, it comes back and gets worse and better. So at that time it was kind of worse, but yeah, I guess the funny thing about that thought to me from the perspective of a of a 50 year old man who's gone through a lot um is that it's crazy actually to think that you can you couldn't come into this profession being less than healthy you know being less than perfectly healthy or that you had to solve this problem in order to be you know for yourself in order to be a proper doctor Mm -hmm. or a proper medical student because the truth of the matter is you're going to be a prop you're going to be a physician um you know hopefully for the rest of your life at least until you retire yeah and um and things are going to happen you're not always going to be perfect mm -hmm. you know um but i think that's a common perception that the physician has to be healthy mm -hmm. um whether it's to motivate patients to lose weight or to lower their blood pressure or to or to you know take control of lifestyles lifestyle elements that may be making you you know maybe making you sick i mean it's kind of a, a high bar to set mm -hmm. especially for those lifestyle illnesses you know, I think it kind of reflects the nature of medicine in general and how it used to be. And I think where it's going, where we're in this transition now from a place where, you know, there's an ideal body that all of us are trying to be. And that I'm not. I have given up. No, but you know what I mean? You know, yeah, there, yeah. there are these normal values, quote unquote, normal values that, you know, are kind of based on like statistics and actuarian uh you know analyses and things like that but i think where we're moving is like what's normal for that person you know what's a normal bmi for that person what's what's average what's more pain or less pain so well let's hear from uh some of the couple of the responses i got back um we'll start with ashley Hello, my name is Ashley and I'm an M3 at the Carver College of Medicine. As someone who has been living with type 1 diabetes for the past 17 and a half years and celiac disease for about four years, I was very excited to hear from Michael, a fellow type 1, or as we like to say, a diabuddy, who asked some great questions about living with chronic disease in medical school. A bit about my own story. When I received my diagnosis at eight years old, I really didn't know anyone else with type 1 diabetes in my family or my small Iowan town. I remember in the weeks unfolding, learning that I would have to live with this for the rest of my life, asking, why me? I felt so alone, so scared. In the months and years that ensued, I discovered an unwavering passion for diabetes and decided to pursue a career in pediatric endocrinology, a dream of mine that I still hold, perhaps even with an even stronger desire today. 
Although there are days where I still ask, why me? I tried to shift my thinking to, why not me? Why should I not be a strong, healthy individual who's unafraid to pursue their dreams? This mindset, the shift from a victim to a victor, or at least someone in pursuit of living well in spite of their disease, is what I hope to instill in my future patients. Medical school is undoubtedly full of challenges for any student. For someone like me, I have found that living with diabetes has made some aspects difficult, while other times I find it making my life a bit easier, especially on clinical rotations. As you might imagine, it has helped me relate and establish a sort of street cred with other people with diabetes. Several patients have shared the phrase, you get it. And truly, I do, at least in part. Diabetes requires someone to take on the role of an organ, or more specifically, a group of cells, 24-7 for the rest of their life, all while trying to be human at the same time. And given that our organs are normally just having to function as that organ, it can be difficult for a person to take on that role. At the same time, I am better geared to seeing a patient with a chronic disease as a person. I truly believe that the social history is as crucial in these cases as any other part of the history. Without understanding the context that the person with the disease lives in, how can we truly treat them to the best of our abilities and allow them to properly manage it in their daily life? As far as advice for people with chronic conditions, I have three main points. First, advocate for yourself. Prior to medical school, I never felt the need to seek accommodations. However, all that changed one afternoon, my first semester M1 year, when I failed an exam solely due to being hypoglycemic to the 40s. I tried and tried to get my blood sugar up, but it just wouldn't budge. And by the time it did, I was so flustered I couldn't focus for the rest of the exam. It was a mistake that I knew I'd never make again, so I reached out to have everything in place for me to have more of a level playing field with my peers. I found that I needed to set up a better system for my success with my disability, although I often hate to call it that. Second, teach others. You are surrounded by people who are the future of medicine. Use the opportunity to show them that at the core of every patient is a person, not their disease. It is also important to show them the challenges that you face in day-to-day life so they can better understand how to relay that to their future patients. My final point, one that I can't emphasize enough, is to know that you are not alone. I lived for 10 years before I made a friend with type 1 diabetes, and until then I truly felt so isolated. It's interesting, actually, because some of the first people I met in undergrad and at med school were type 1s. And there are several people in my class here who have celiac disease, among countless other chronic illnesses. I can't emphasize enough about the importance of community, whether in med school or not. In my life, it has made all the difference knowing that I'm not fighting alone. I'd like to conclude with advice for future providers. You do not need a medical condition to care. Instead, I would argue, at least, that a good provider is one who listens and tries to learn from their patients. 
try to make sure to take the opportunity to stop and listen to people living with illnesses like diabetes, whether it's from a fellow classmate or from a patient that you encounter during clinical rotations. Really listen and don't be afraid to ask them questions. Finally, remember that regardless of whether we have a chronic condition or not, that we all face challenges and that these are often invisible in day-to-day life. In fact, someone in my class who I interacted with on a daily basis throughout medical school didn't find out that I had diabetes until our second year. This goes to show that we often don't realize the challenges that people face, even when we think that we know them relatively well. Your patient is more than their disease, whether it's invisible or not. And finally, remember that we are in the medical field to treat people, not just their disease. Thank you for your question, Michael. And to all the listeners, please reach out and let me know if you have any further questions. That's wonderful. I think the the accommodations piece of this is kind of important for, for medical students to understand when they come in. Um, my guess is that some people are reluctant to take accommodations either because they don't want to be seen as different or they don't want to be seen as disabled um, or they don't want to be seen as getting a uh, getting a leg up that they don't deserve or something like that um, and my thought is hogwash um, these accommodations exist for a reason um, and it's absolutely nobody you know if you're if you're worried about other people's perceptions of you it's absolutely nobody's business um, what accommodations you get for your condition and it's not about giving you of course it isn't about giving you a, an advantage over other people um, it's about as Ashley said leveling that playing field you know the other thing about accommodations is that uh, th- those are probably <clears throat> hard-fought rights that people who didn't have them before worked really hard to get so they're there to be used and you shouldn't feel ashamed to ask for like kind of like Dave is saying you're not you're not stepping up over your peers you're trying to step to where they are right, right. so yeah take it take full advantage and don't feel bad those those are your rights and you have the right to exercise your rights and and Alex and AJ medical school is grueling i think as you've discovered in your first semester right yeah oh yeah oh yeah I mean, it's grueling for healthy people. And as Ashley said, you know, when she was having her blood sugar problem just before an exam, nobody needs that extra stress. I mean, everybody's stressed out enough. That's a stressor on top of all of the other stressors. Um, it's just an unhealthy way to to go through your, your medical school career um, to have that extra stress added onto your situation. Yeah, it's uh, even with all of the things that medical school puts on your plate, if there's already stuff taking up room on your plate, mm-hmm. um, that, that makes it so much more difficult. I, I don't know, I, I know there's there has to be people in our class that that are dealing with some of this stuff, and I, I hope that they're getting the accommodations that they need. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's people in our class who have their parents, they have to take care of their kids between classes. Um, they have all these extra things that they have to worry about on top of medical school. I mean, I'm struggling to get through each week just keeping on top of what I have, and I don't have any of those extra um I don't want to say burdens because they're not, but extra things in my life that I have to take care of as well that are equally as important. So all I can really say is hats off to everybody dealing with uh, some kind of chronic illness or you know just anything other than what is perceived as the norm or 
um, a little outdated gold standard of what a medical student or a doctor should be. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's take a break because I need to say that uh, one way to stay healthy is to engage in out- activities outside of medicine. It's another fantastic segue. <laughs> Dave Eller. Uh, many, many physicians and medical students do this through the arts and humanities. Painters, writers, sculptors, dancers, photographers, musicians, artists of all types um, and people from all professions and all walks of life are welcome at our 14th annual Examine Life Conference coming this October. It actually starts next week. Right when the show comes out will be the first day. Hmm. But it, it, that's not too late because sessions will be going on throughout October and November. Um, all the sessions are virtual, filled with 27 presentations on everything from investigating polio stories to using traditional dance to na- narrate stories of women in medicine, uh, from writing workshops to a free and open to the public featured presentation by physician author uh, Rena Oddish, I found out is her actual pronunciation. Uh, head on over to examinelifeconference.com to design your personal schedule with our a la carte pricing. Most sessions are just 15 bucks. And we also have some really cool long format workshops you can take advantage of to build your skills and your enjoyment of life. Again, that's examinelifeconference.com. Go look at it. Join us. I'll be there. I'll be there for practically every session throughout October and November. (laughs) It's going to be a long couple of months, but I will enjoy it. Is it all over Zoom? It's all Zoom. So no risk. No risk. No risk, all reward. <laughs> no. Hopefully there's a reward, Aline. No, all reward. Oh, no risk, all reward. I thought you said no risk, How no dare reward. You. I'm like, what kind of crappy promo is that, Aline? <laughs> no risk, nothing but no, reward. No, no risk, and you don't get to enjoy yourself. Perfectly. Um, <laughs> we're real good at this. <laughs> Let's listen to uh, this response. Hello, Michael. My name is Ananya Munjal. I am a current M2 at the Carver College of Medicine, and I just wanted to thank you for what I thought was a really thought-provoking and important question, and one that I think doesn't um, get asked too often in medicine. Um, I had a thyroidectomy over the summer, um, because despite what they teach you, uh, turns out you don't need a thyroid to be alive. Um, and so now every day I take levothyroxine, which is, um, a medicine that supplements the hormones that my thyroid would have given me. Um, and so I guess while this isn't a chronic condition, um, it is something that I have to take daily. Um, and I guess, you know, the average person doesn't have to take life-saving medication every day. Um, and this morning I actually had a shadowing experience in otolaryngology, um, which is actually where I had my surgery just a couple months ago. So I thought this would be a good time to reflect on that and, um, maybe give you some input of what I think. Um, So when I was um, walking through the units today, we actually rounded on, I think, three patients that had thyroidectomies. And it was a very strange experience to be back for the first time um, since I had been discharged in the exact same unit that I was in um, and like scrub in in the exact same place where I was on the other side of the wall just a couple months ago. And I, I genuinely feel that this has made me more 
better equipped, I should say, to become a healthcare provider. And I am guessing that any medical student or healthcare provider that goes through any kind of illness is better equipped because once you see the unknowing and the fear that is involved with what you call the patient experience, um, I think you're a more empathetic provider. And they talk about this in medical school all the time. Um, how do we teach empathy and how do we, um, encourage our students to, you know, feel what the patient's feeling. And they, um, teach us these cues, like, you know, like nod your head and like put your hand on someone's knee or like, you know, just make sure you don't say, I'm sorry too much. And don't make sure you don't say, I understand, or I like feel what you're feeling too much. And I think these things are um, important, of course, to give students tools with which to express empathy. But I don't know, after this experience, I'm thinking that now, like when I see a patient that, I mean, this was a very specific example with um, patients who had had thyroidectomies just like I had. But I'm thinking whenever I see a patient now that I'm going to prescribe a medication to and they're going to say, wow, like that's really hard that I have to take a medication every day. I'll be able to say, yeah, I know. And like, this is the way that you can like deal with that. And this is the way in which this, you know, is not going to ruin your life. Um, and I think you're just better equipped with the tools with which to respond to patient concerns, um, because you're actually able to put yourselves in their shoes. Um, and one thing my mentor said to me, which I thought was wonderful, is that not only does like going through these experiences make you more empathetic, but it makes you more creative um, because you learn how to adapt and you learn how to find solutions to seemingly solutionless problems. Um, yeah. And I just want to thank you for sharing your experiences so openly. It really emboldened me to share mine really openly. Um, and I really appreciate that. And I think it sounds like you're going to be a phenomenal healthcare provider if you're able to channel these experiences into empathy and keep talking about them so openly. And I think your future patients will really appreciate that. So good luck to you, Michael. I am excited to see, hear more about you and um, see where you end up. All right. Thanks. Yeah. The, uh, the shadowing experience that she talked about is something I've heard from medical students before. It's like having an out-of-body experience. Like, it's so <laughs> weird. Bit. I've heard that it's so weird to be back where you were. And this applies to people who, you know, get sick in medical school, when all of a sudden they find themselves in a very awkward position of, you know, being in a clinic where other medical students are rotating, other medical students that you know mm -hmm. are rotating. Um, so that's a little awkward. You, um, you can specify, though, when you call and make your point, you can... You can say, hey, I don't want any trainees of any kind. Yeah. Well, yeah. I remember and, and at least in our Go ahead. At least in our charts, it, it has a pop up that like this is a medical student. Yeah. Don't access this chart unless you're like an attending or something. Yeah. I remember a co-host who got hit by a car and, you know, she was, you know, she recovered, fr uh, fortunately. But uh, but um, I remember her saying how super strange it was because she wasn't even like for her in an emergent situation, it wasn't even a matter of like, I don't want to see medical students. She didn't really have much choice. She was being like wheeled through hallways in on a gurney kind of situation. And people were like, oh, that's that's her. <laughs> you can't unsee. I mean, you know, that's different. That's a that's a much more difficult situation. What do you guys think about her point about resilience and how this um, contributes to one's this could contribute to one's resilience? I think that's a very, very strong point. Um, you know, if you have some kind of illness that can potentially kill you, if you're not on top of it, it's kind of empowering almost to be able to go through everything else and say, 
that I can overcome anything because I can overcome this or even uh, despite what I have I can overcome anything. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say that, you know, in the years following my illness, you know, there were times when I drew upon it to at least to be like, suck it up, Etler. You almost died, dude. (laughs) Nothing could be worse than that. I mean, perspective. Oh, you're sad? (laughs) (laughs) You know? Oh, you're mad that this thing happened to you? Well, like, don't geek yourself. You, you, <laughs> you're allowed to feel sad about I things. Be, but... I, 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 yeah, this is my, my negative worldview where I'm like, I, I draw upon my experiences in order to berate myself. <laughs> hey, <laughs> nut. <laughs> Deal I, with it. I also feel like maybe if you've been a benefactor of the of a good system in the past, then maybe you're much more motivated to work through some stuff in order to hopefully pass on some of that that beneficence to to future patients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always like to say that even if you had a bad experience, you know, there are people out there who teach us how not to. Oh be. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And um, you know that's kind of important. Right. You hear a lot about bad experiences. It's, I mean, you know, when you when you when you have an intense situation, when you have an intensive situation like being sick, especially in the long term, there's plenty of opportunities for you to, you know, experience, you know, the shitty scheduling uh, uh, situation or the the um, the you know person who's having a really bad day and doesn't treat you well and and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you just have more opportunities to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like now, once you like, I'm on clinical rotations now. You can kind of see how inter- uh, situations can be interpreted differently, and how like the doctor that you're working with may be saying something, but the patient's hearing it very differently, and that can be interpreted as being like rude, or mm-hmm. or maybe like everybody on the team is starving because they've been rounding for so many hours, and by the time they get to the last patient, like maybe their care isn't as good, and so you can see how like different factors affect that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're hangry. Yeah. It's real. Nothing better than a hangry intern. <laughs> you know, it was funny as I was listening to Ananya's recording. I'm so used to co-hosting with her that I wanted to respond in real time. <laughs> so I was like, oh, wait, no, no, she's not actually here. But, yeah, I didn't know that about her. That's a big deal. What? Uh, so what if you don't have a thyroid? What happens to you? Uh, I mean, it throws your metabolism out of whack, I think, to not have T3, T4, mm-hmm. right? You'd have dry skin, be tired all the time. You'd gain weight. Constipation. Yeah. <laughs> be cold all the time. God, that sounds like me. Maybe maybe somebody stole my thyroid. <laughs> <laughs> we can find out right now. We can just think <laughs> Um. All right. This is, we might take you up on that after the show. Uh, you should, you're better off asking Alex and AJ and oh, Emma. They are a little closer to the end. Well, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> we haven't really learned I, anything yet. So if you I can a, tell you about like GLUT4 receptors. That's that's all I got. <laughs> if you want a PCR run on your thyroid, I can help you out with that. Emma, get your ass over here. <laughs> okay, the thyroid is so hard to feel. Like, I still don't know if I've ever felt my own. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. It's the butterfly. It's supposed to be, test, like, on right? t- is it on top of the, the in front of the... It's supposed to, like, the... be able to swallow and feel it go up and down, but I don't know. 
I mean, yeah. I just feel shit moving around in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I say. <laughs> it's like listening for the murmur. That's what I write in the note. Yeah. I felt some shit moving around. <laughs> I listened to I listened to his heart, and sure, I, some I heard, shit was happening. I I'm heard a sure. murmur. There's some noises. <laughs> sure. You can't build though for that. You have to call it something else. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Here's one more. Hi, Michael. My name is Cassie. I'm a fourth-year medical student at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I recently listened to the message you recorded about your own chronic health conditions and your interest in the patient experience. This is a topic I've been particularly passionate and curious about myself. Specifically, I've always wondered how we can create more transparency and openness between and among um, health professionals and health professional students such that we feel that we're able to share our experiences dealing with our own illnesses. I think a major barrier preventing us from talking about this more is that we feel either disqualified or hypocritical if we're going to be helping to care for and manage the medical conditions of others when we have medical conditions of our own. Anyways, I'd like to share my own story with you in response. I do not feel that I'm fighting every day to simply survive at this time in my life anymore, but there was definitely a time where every single day was a struggle for me. It's actually been 10 years now since my diagnosis. Back in 2010, I was hospitalized primarily due to severe bradycardia, and I was ultimately diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. I believe I was 14 years old at the time. I now believe I suffered from obsessive compulsive personality disorder or quote unquote perfectionism and what we also commonly refer to as the female athlete triad. I had this what seemed at the time to be a great idea to eat healthy, though I was not fully educated about what that meant and I ended up not eating enough calories or uh, the right amount of macronutrients to support my very active lifestyle, which landed me in an inpatient eating disorder treatment program with the diagnosis of anorexia. As a young teenager at the time, I felt especially ashamed. I think it's no secret the social stigma sur surrounding mental illnesses in our society, especially with regards to eating disorders, I feel there's a misconception um, held by those who have not suffered from one themselves, that it's merely uh, people with attention-seeking behavior who are superficially concerned about nothing more than their physical appearance. But I think my story of being an athlete and having the personality of holding myself to high academic and athletic standards is an example that that's not exactly the case. It took me several years to recover from this, and I believe the experience really changed who I am as a person and the trajectory of my life. It's initially what interested me in pursuing medicine, and unfortunately, it was not because I had healthcare providers that were really kind and inspiring. In fact, it was quite the opposite, which could have been due to my age at the time, but I experienced very paternalistic type treatment, what we now think of as the old medical model, where doctors tell patients what's going on with their health and exactly how they're going to be treated or managed, um, really without the patient's input or consideration of the fact that even though two people may suffer from the same disease, uh, they may need to be treated differently if, uh, at least if our goal is to deliver the best care possible, 
for the best patient outcomes we can possibly achieve, which I believe it should be. My patient experience was very frustrating because I didn't feel like I was being treated as a whole person, but rather as an illness, like I was no longer a human being. Once I carried my diagnosis, all I mounted to was my disease. I wasn't Cassie, I was anorexia, I was anorexic. As a result, I'm really passionate about and glad that our healthcare system is moving towards patient-centered care and more personalized medicine. The way I envision my future practice is me being a partner with people and helping them with whatever they're facing in their life, rather than me being a doctor, seeing patients, labeling them with diagnoses and managing diseases. In conclusion, I'm really happy to say that I've been in remission for several years now. One thing I actually debate myself about is whether I think you fully recover from mental illnesses or whether they are something that we learn to manage and live with and when we develop um, adequate skills to cope and manage them well, then they become something in remission. Um, but that's a whole other topic. Thanks again for sharing your story. It's really encouraging to hear from someone else who is very open about their own medical conditions. I hope more people in the medical com community will feel comfortable sharing their stories as well. And if you have any questions for me or if I can be any help to you in some way as a fourth year medical student, please feel free to contact me. I think what's great about this question that Michael posed to us, or, or this, yeah, about his, his contacting us is that, you know, several people I'm sure I didn't get responses from everybody who has experienced, has similar experiences. But the people who did reach out, um, even those who didn't end up submitting a recording, were happy to say, you know, contact me, Michael, if you have questions or if you need anything, which I think is is a, a wonderful thing to, to offer. Um, so thank you uh, on Michael's behalf. Um, yeah, uh, we keep anticipating things that people are saying like, um, like the fact that, you know, experiences, you can have negative experiences and learn from those things as well as positive experiences. And, um, and so that's cool. I guess it just means we're, we're clever. But, um, but there's also, you know, the other thing that she, the, the clear other thing that she um, talked about is, you know, it's not physical illnesses, mental illnesses also occupy this, this space. And, um, and in some ways, they're even more difficult for medical students and physicians because those are not treated, there's, you know, for, they're just not treated the same way sometimes, a lot of times in medicine. I mean, you would expect, for instance, we heard this last week on Jeff Moody's, on, the, on our podcast with Jeff Moody, you know, in, in his state and in other states, um, the state medical board has access or requires access to your to your um, medical records, um, which means you know out of some concern for patient safety, um, which is as he acknowledges is I mean that's that's a problem, you know mm -hmm. why seek treatment for something if it's going to be considered a professional liability, mm -hmm. right? There's even, uh, there's a lot of discussions that go on online in like the medical uh, student application boards, like the forums online, like SDN and Reddit, where um, they discuss if it's like worth it to mention mental illnesses on your application because some like, um, historically speaking, like schools have viewed it as a red flag, yeah. which is really sad, yeah. very sad. And you know what's ironic? We kind of talked about this on the show last week, but it seems that in the context of the pandemic, people with pre-existing you know, mental health disorders are doing really well. 
you know, like weathering the storm a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You know, so I wouldn't say they should treat it like a green flag and automatically admit that person, but certainly it's not always an impediment. It can you know, give a clue as to the strengths of that person, that they could actually be an asset and a support to the other med students who a significant number will develop a mental health disorder in med school. Yeah, and that might actually be the case, um, but it's so contradictory to the stigma surrounding mental health. Yeah. It, it, the, the culture has determined that if you have a mental illness, you are in some way not as able to contribute, which is well, absolutely dangerous. horrible. Yeah. Or, yeah, or worse, yeah. you're dangerous. Truly, yeah. Um. <laughs> oh, that one really spoke to me, actually. That one really struck a chord with me. I mean, all like all the stories that we've talked about, very powerful and a lot of really valuable insights. Um, but that one in particular, because you're not, you know, that person isn't just overcoming the physical challenges of what she was enduring. She also had to over- overcome attitudes of the people around her who mm-hmm. probably saw her as a bit of a liar abusing a system for real patients. Yeah, that's another real, real problem. Yeah. Um, especially if you're, I mean, there are, especially if your condition is recalcitrant, right? You know, it's, I mean, Cassie describes herself as being in, rem, in remission, but some, you know, mental health disorders are, you know, just, I don't know if remission is the right word for those conditions. And as she, you know, sort of implied, you know, like, do they ever go away? Yeah, there's no I think in some cases they sure they do. You know, like if you have situational mm-hmm. depression, or, you know, depression because of a certain situation, yeah. then clearly, you know, that will, when the situation hopefully subsides, then you know, the condition will go away. But if you are, if you have a longer term, if you have a chronic depression, for instance, you know, that's something that you manage for the rest of your life, just like anything. And it's just as dangerous mm-hmm. um, to you personally, although I would argue not necessarily to those people, to the people around you. Um, and so probably it's completely unnecessary um, in a lot of cases for say state medical boards or your employer or, you know, whatever to have access to that information to protect patient safety. Yeah, I mean, a lot of cases, a lot of a lot of people with mental health disorders are perfectly functional, you know, with the right help and the right support, and the total lack of judgment. Like they're perfectly competent providers. They hold down jobs. They're good parents. Doesn't mean that they can't function properly in this setting. You know, I'm reminded of a of a presentation. I can't remember who the who the dude was who came to the college. Um, off the top of my head, but he is in a wheelchair and he came in and spoke to the student body. And oh, I know who you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about? Do you remember his name? The guy who's like wheelchair can go up. Yeah, he's yeah, he, like showed, he showed it during yeah. that. Yeah, hmm. I, I don't know. He's from like University of Michigan, though. I remember yeah, that. and um, oh, I think we watched that you probably this past week. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, on our lecture on communicating with patients with disabilities, yeah, it was a very, very uh, enthralling discussion. I think one of the things that I remember specifically about that, about his presentation was um, his wish that medical schools come at this question of technical standards and disability from the perspective of, yes, you can do it. Um, Show me, you know, Mm -hmm. welcome, come in Mm -hmm. um, and demonstrate because we know you, because we know you can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's room for everyone under the medicine umbrella. Yeah. You know, and there are very few things that kind of completely and in a way that threatens patient safety hold you back yeah. from performing this job. You know, maybe certain specialties are a little bit out of your range. Like, sure, it's hard if to. If you're blind, I'm not sure, you know, how 
well, you're going to do in radiology or ophthalmology or something like that. But, you know, yeah. in a, in a, in a I, I don't know, like maybe, but may, there's probably other things you can do. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, maybe you'd make a great psychiatrist. And like AJ, and you can make, oh. and I was just saying, you can make adaptions. Like what I was talking about earlier was this guy who came to talk, this doctor who came to talk, um, was in a wheelchair. I don't remember why. Um, but I think he was he injured. He had was, this, he, he was a, Oh, right. Was he a swimmer? Yeah. I can't remember. I don't remember. He was, he was injured. Yeah. So he, um, but he had this wheelchair that would like allow him to stand up. And so I think he could stand up at like, I don't know what kind of doctor he was. <laughs> I don't remember a lot of the details, but I think he was able to like then go do surgery because he was able to then stand up and like they made accommodations for him. Huh. So yeah, he did. was able to do what other people were doing. So That's all I have. I want to thank um, everybody who contributed to the show today and everybody who wrote back to say that uh, they would be happy for me to pass on contact information to Michael. Um, and I especially want to thank Michael for um, starting us on this topic. Um, today's show was a little different from our usual, and uh, I think that's a good thing. Every once in a while, we need to do something, need to do something a little different. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that's our show. Alex, AJ, welcome aboard. Thank you very much. Happy this this was fun. I hope you'll come back and play with us again. I think you will, because you're signed up. We're signed up. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Together, actually. We're, we're a unit. Oh, all right. <laughs> Alayje, Ajalix. That's what you're doing. Uh, Emma, Aline, thanks, as always, for being the usual super cool selves. You're welcome. My and, pleasure. And what kind of fart napper would I be if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us part of your week? By the way, fart napper is a, germ, is a Danish word, and it means uh, speed buttons. Huh. Speed buttons. That's interesting. This, 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 uh, I, I looked it up, um, and it has to do with the clarinet. So, well, that is something I didn't know before. But yeah, see, that's that's you all I got. A lot on this show. That's what Google Translate told me. There's a term in um, running that's called fartlek run, which is like speed play. It's true. Yeah. That's Swedish. There you go. Yeah. Oh, Swedish. There you go. <laughs> so anyway, thank you for making us part of your week. If you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show or on whatever wherever fine podcasts are available. I'll remind you that your questions are vital to the show. Be like Michael. Um, send in your listener questions and comments to the shortcoats at gmail.com. You can leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. Short CT. We'll talk about it on the show while your podcast app is open. We hope you'll be the kind of listener we're always grateful for. Give us some stars and actually type in some stuff. You can give us some stars, and that's great. But type in some stuff to let us know if we're doing this podcasting thing right. Thank you. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, student government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week. 